Spirit of the living God, guide us now. Open our minds and our hearts for what you have for us this day. Amen. I've never been proud of the fact that I used to live in Bakersfield, California. I never offer the information that I am a product of Bakersfield High School, home of the drillers. <laughs> Our mascot was an oil rig. An oil rig that was carried around the football field on a trailer, accompanied by Dottie and Donnie Driller. Merle Haggard and Buck Owens claim Bakersfield as home, and it's hard to find just the right dinner party to drop that piece of information. <laughs> when my family moved to Bakersfield from Southern California, I had left behind a Christian school of 200 and entered Bakersfield High School with an enrollment of 5,000. I arrived two weeks late into the school year. Every day it was over 100 degrees. Not only was it physically hot, the campus radiated the heat of racial tension. The school was a microcosm of our country in the 1960s. Every noon hour, one could witness one or two of the motorcycle patrol officers assigned to our campus roaring across the grounds to where some form of violence was taking place, most of it racially motivated. Although there were fists and knives, fortunately there were no guns. One could physically feel the tension as one often walked the campus. I can also look back and acknowledge how deeply influenced I was by some fine teachers. Miss Green was notorious for being a tough English teacher. She had high expectations and just one of her looks could quell any thought of disordered behavior. One day she announced a cross-cultural writing assignment. We were to choose some setting where we had never been, some place where we would be the minority. And I can assure you, in that era, that was a radical assignment. Some of you will recall that historically we used phone books. <laughs> and I remember going to the Yellow Pages and found the listing for an African-American church in a neighborhood where I had never been. My friend Norma Warkentine from our Bakersfield Mennonite Church agreed to pick me up and drop me off at the black church on her way to worship. The church had been difficult to find. The setting was bleak. It was an industrial area of the city with randomly placed houses on a gravel road. The church was wedged into the neighborhood. It was very small. I tried to act like I knew what I was doing as I stepped out of the car onto the white covered ground from the canopy of cottonwood trees. I was fearful 
about how I would be received. There were very few people that had arrived for Sunday school, and I was taken to the adult Sunday school class. There were two others in the small office, the deacon teacher and the elderly man seated next to me. The custom of the class was to receive the offering on top of the Bible that was held out by the deacon and passed to each person. I remember scrambling to dig a dollar bill from my wallet and the older man seated next to me dug deep into the pocket of his Sunday suit and brought forth his offering. Two pennies were placed on the Bible. The gift was given with dignity and it was received with dignity. In a time and in a city where neighborhoods were clearly defined and in an era when the neighborhood gates were invisible but just as strong a barrier to those who didn't belong, I am sure there was great puzzlement as to why a young white girl would be dropped off at church on Sunday morning. However, I was received with great warmth. I remember reflecting on what I intuited as truth. I didn't believe my church would have welcomed a member of this African-American church as graciously as I was welcomed. It rattled me. I left with a whole new understanding of the story of the widow with the two mites. The setting of the first scene of our gospel lesson is the court of the Gentiles. Streams of visitors were in the holy city through the seven days of the great annual feast of the Jews. The scribes were moving through the temple and streets wearing their flowing robes with made of white linen with tassels on the fringe. These folks were some of the original power dressers. Their robe gave them status. It guaranteed them a place of honor at the banquet table. It provided them with special seats in the synagogue. Josephus, early historian who was a Pharisee, helps us understand the story by explaining that an expert in the law could take no pay for his teaching. He was supposed to have a trade by which he earned his daily bread. But these legal experts had managed to convey to people that there was no higher duty and privilege than to support a rabbi in comfort. In fact, such support would undoubtedly entitle the giver to a higher place in the heavenly academy. So, with that background, we shift to the scene of the court of women, which also houses the treasury. There were 13 brass receptacles shaped like trumpets around the walls. At first glance, this text seems perfect for a non-controversial consecration Sunday where pledge cards are signed and budget made. I have heard many sermons celebrating the widow's sacrificial giving. However, I'm inviting us to take another look into the story. 
First of all, the woman has no name because in her society she is invisible. And she is not just a poor widow. She is poor because she is a widow. She may have arrived that morning with an unused, wadded up grocery list in her pocket. The reason she is so destitute is because she has no power in a society in which wives are fully dependent on their husband to provide. This story is wedged between the condemnation of the scribes and the prediction of the destruction of the temple and the overflow, overthrow of the religious authorities. What Jesus' words offered the scribes was an example of how their corrupt practices are being lived out within their sight if they will only open their eyes and acknowledge what Jesus just witnessed. Jesus speaks the truth that the widow is now destitute because of the religious leader's teachings. His words offer a concrete example of how corrupt the system is. For surely, this is an example of Jesus' accusation that the religious system is devouring the widow's house. Her donation was the wake-up call that was needed to name the corruption within the religious infrastructure. As I reflect back on my high school trip to an invisible neighborhood, I am painfully reminded of my family and my church who were silent. My dad was clear about the importance of not having blacks in the neighborhood. My church was silent about race relations. There was no discussion about how Jesus would respond to racial tension and violence. Never did we discuss the political systems that were designed to keep some neighborhoods invisible and their voices drowned out. In all that silence, it was Miss Green who followed in the way of Jesus and invited her class to participate in an assignment that helped us to begin to dare to risk seeing with new eyes. I could never read this text without thinking about that Sunday morning. While working on this sermon, I dug out my high school annual, and I was stunned to count 176 teachers and counselors, and there were only two African-American teachers in this most racially diverse school in the city. In this era of war on truth-telling that is taking place regarding racism, the Holocaust, the plight of many LGBTQ students, we as a church have an even deeper responsibility to be the place where our children can learn important history that they perhaps will not be learning elsewhere. I've spent a few evenings this month watching the story of John Lewis, the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, and a documentary on the community of Vanport. But it is the truth-telling work of Brian Stevenson that has challenged me in some new and as always very uncomfortable ways. 
Brian Stevenson, educated at Eastern University in Philadelphia and Harvard, found himself living through a collision between the focus of justice in the evangelical Eastern University and the secularism of Harvard Law School. Upon passing the bar, he founded the Equal Justice Initiative 1989 in Montgomery, Alabama, where his roots were. For 30 years, his commitment has been to providing legal representation to prisoners who have made, perhaps been wrongly connected to crimes, to poor persons without effective representation, and to others who have been denied a fair trial. Stevenson provides the documented history that is so often lacking in schools. One of his commitments has been the work to honor the stories of more than 4,000 lynching victims. He is also one who confronts churches about their generations of silence. For 30 years, he has been a witness and a truth teller. As a follower of the way of Jesus, he often uses the story out of the Gospel of John when he invites folks to be stone catchers as opposed to stone throwers. He reminds folks about the story of Jesus who spoke against those who were going to stone the adulterous woman. While school boards are dealing with folks who want books removed and the assurance of slave trade and enslavement and segregation wiped out of curriculum, I cherish the work of Stevenson, who gives thanks for the slowly rising body of churches who are waking up and desiring to be a witness against systemic racism. He points out the gifts that we uniquely carry in the church. We carry the teachings of Jesus, redemption, justice, mercy, unmerited grace. In 1914, Stevenson wrote Just Mercy, which in 2020 was made into a feature film. As painful as it is to watch, it is another truth-telling vehicle. The focus is on the story of his standing with one man who was wrongfully convicted. The reader learns of the long, arduous journey of years to get justice. In the credits of the movie, we learn that during the years of work by the Equal Justice Initiative, 140 death row prisoners have been released. His TED Talk, is a call to all of us to deal with the parallels of slave trade with the reality of our mass incarceration. He pushes his audience to see the legacy of racial inequality. He teaches that slavery didn't end, it evolved. Stevenson claims that the true measure of our character is proved through how we treat the poor how we treat the disfavored, how we treat the incarcerated, 
and how we treat the condemned. He claims that we've been divided by the politics of fear and anger, and that it's easy to stop caring about things we should care about. In his truth-telling, he also acknowledges that this is hard work. It is hard work. It's both exhausting, he says, and it's a blessing. And he believes the work has the potential to strengthen us. I find it so challenging to not live in fear as I see the chipping away of those laws that have been created in my lifetime that were designed to take steps towards being more fair, more just. But the church is where I find hope. Last week, we listened to Yara's story and reflected on the postcard we each received that graphically depicted the Palestinian loss of land from 1945 to now. It was a vivid reminder of how important it is to be a truth-telling church. There may come a time when we must take a look at our curriculum to make sure we are being the witnesses of stories that are being left out of our public school education. 